It's August 28th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Matt Lynch from TEDx Honolulu to tell us about the upcoming TEDx Honolulu Salon. Finally, we will explore the Department of Education's Common Core Standards and, of course, its technology implementation. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, an ambitious plan to build a new $350 million submarine internet cable connecting Australia and New Zealand to Hawaii and the U.S. West Coast got a major boost with the announcement of a new customer last week. TPG Telecom, Australia's fourth largest ISP, linked what's described as a multi-million dollar deal to acquire three terabit per second fiber capacity on the Australian to U.S. leg of the cable system, spearheaded by Auckland-based Hawaii-Viki, Hawaii-Viki Cable. The company has also committed to acquiring capacity on the segment linking Sydney to New Zealand. The Hawaii-Viki Cable is promising 20 terabits per second capacity across its two fiber pairs at launch with the option for future upgrades. Hawaii-Viki Cable says the 8,700-mile cable system could be operating within two years. The main cable will also have branches connecting to several South Pacific islands, including Samoa, Fiji, and Vanuatu. TPG has been expanding its regularly uh, regularly holdings and capacity uh, taking over competitor pipe network in 2010, securing a uh, subsea cable connecting Australia to Japan, Singapore, and Guam. TPG Executive uh, Chairman David Toh said in a statement, Hawaii has a team with considerable experience in fiber cable systems, and this project represents an excellent opportunity to give us a new high-quality international link direct to the U.S., uh, complementing existing international links. And, of course, some of those international links uh, include things like um, Southern Cross, which has been one of the uh, primary fiber optic uh, networks that uh, link the, um, uh, I guess, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Hawaii, and the, and the West Coast. Now, what I've heard is that a lot of the proposed fiber optic trans-Pacific fiber that's coming through either um, bypasses Hawaii altogether or maybe has a sort of a minor spur coming out to Hawaii, right. but not, a, not an actual landing into a cross-connect uh, facility. Well, there's an excellent website at uh, submarinecablemap.com, and it's a pretty interactive way to look at all the cables running across the world, actually, not just the Pacific Ocean, but you can zoom in on the Pacific. And it is true that a lot of the most re- more recent deployments of undersea cable, particularly from Asia to the U.S. West Coast, just fly right by mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. So actually, this cable that we're talking about, the Hawaii cable and the Southern Cross is critical to our infrastructure because it does stop or it should stop here. Now, this is still early on for this. We don't know where the termination point will be. We don't know if it's going to interconnect with anything or just stop by. But uh, definitely there hasn't been as much capacity from Hawaii to, for example, the South Pacific. So this is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that you have to kind of pay attention to some of these uh, cable projects is whether or not they have upfront funding. Now, this is a customer that has ob- uh, basically obligated to buy capacity. Mm-hmm. But whether or not the the actual cable project goes through is dependent on how much the initial investors have in the bank right. to really fund this uh, actual activity. So it's still a question as to whether or not it'll ultimately get implemented. Yeah, I mean, they're saying they've covered with this one three terabits out of the 20 total, but that's a lot more customers that you need to be confident of to move forward. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's uh, with the, the huge distances, the limited populations, the isolation, and um, one of the reports for this 
Access Cable talked about how a lot of places rely on satellite internet, mm-hmm. and that's like fifteen hundred bucks a month for a specific kind of connection. Uh, well, and the latencies are terrible. With yes, satellite. absolutely, no gaming there. So we'll be tracking this story. Although scientists have been aware of the presence of mercury in ocean fish for years, researchers at the University of Hawaii this week announced that they've narrowed down the pathway that this potentially harmful element takes to get there. Working with colleagues at the University of Michigan, the researchers concluded that much of the mercury traveled through the atmosphere for thousands of miles before reaching the ocean, and they believe mercury levels in Pacific fish will only rise in the next few decades. Previous UH research, research found a strong correlation between the depth at which fish fed and the levels of mercury their tissues contain. But while it was clear that mercury was entering the ocean at the surface, it was deep water fish that had the highest concentrations of mercury. Key to their newest findings were new isotopic measurement techniques. They allowed scientists to determine that up to 80% of the toxic form of mercury called methylmercury found in the tissues of deep-feeding North Pacific Ocean fish is actually produced deep in the ocean. And although this production is likely by bacteria clinging to bits of organic matter that sunk from the surface, the source mercury is coming from rapidly industrializing nations that are actually ramping up coal-burning power plants, which are a major source of mercury pollution. UH geology professor and co-author of the paper Brian Pop said in a statement, The implications are that if we're going to effectively reduce the mercury concentrations in open ocean fish, we're going to have to reduce global emissions of mercury, including emissions from places like China and India. Well, so it was interesting that uh, I think a lot of people had suspected that the mercury was coming from atmospheric, um, you know, sort of deposits. I think they were also trying to determine whether it was coming off of land runoff and things like that. But uh, what was kind of interesting was that uh, they found that most of the fish were deep sea fish Mm -hmm. that were actually getting mercury, uh, you know, basically in their tissue. yeah, I mean, they had a couple of contradictory or counterintuitive findings. Mm-hmm. One, that the deeper fish were the had the higher concentrations because um, methylmercury is actually, you know, um, made inert at the surface where there's a lot of sunlight. So they were trying to figure out how this could be. But also this isotopic technique that they had allowed them to find a nearly perfect match with the signature of the atmospheric mercury that we know is coming from mm-hmm. these factories overseas. So uh, definitely interesting. Now, uh, we're ta- they looked at several types of fish, flying fish, mahi-mahi, yellowfin, skipjack, uh, moonfish or opa, big eye and swordfish, uh, and finding, as we mentioned, uh, that the larger fish and the more deep-sea fish are the ones that have the higher concentrations. And, of course, uh, in addition to its health impacts, it has a higher level of impact on young people or even um, developing fetuses. So, you know, I think uh, the the, uh, the rule of thumb is that if you're eating mahi-mahi and, and ahi like that, that's still considered surface, so there's the less, less com- contamination from mercury. Right. Uh, but uh, they also concluded, of course, that this bacteria was actually what was causing the uh, mercury to be, I guess, more popular, more more, um, more widespread in the deeper waters. Right, and of course them saying that the way to reduce the amount of mercury in fish is to reduce the amount of mercury in the air. Air, right. That's, a high, that's definitely a high uh, standard to set. Well, next up, Honolulu-based True Tag Technologies has been named one of the year's technology pioneers by the World Economic Forum, joining past honorees like Google and Twitter. True Tag, previously featured here on Bite Marks Cafe, was one of 36 companies named for 2014. The technology pioneers will be presented at the September 12th gathering in China. And True Tag uh, Chairman Hank Wu said 
uh, or is also an orthopedic surgeon, inventor, and entrepreneur, will be among the featured speakers at the closing plenary event. The Hawaii firm is in good company with a list of 2014 technology pioneers, including several names that might be familiar to geeks. They include Airbnb, Code Academy, Coursera, GitHub, and Nest Labs. TrueTag has developed nearly microscopic particles that can contain complex signatures. They're chemically inert, so these tiny tags are less than a width of a human hair and can be mixed into drugs, incorporated into electronic components, or even clothes. The technology is aimed at battling counterfeit drugs and other high-value products representing what the company says represents over $600 billion in lost revenues but it can also enhance quality control, tracking, and logistics for almost any industry. In a statement released yesterday, Wu said, I'm looking forward to discussing the role of innovation for the future of society and sharing our vision for TrueTag to impact the global counterfeit problem, especially in the area of safety and authenticity of food and medicine, where the impact of counterfeits on human lives is beyond measure. Now, you know, We've got a chance to visit uh, this company, mm-hmm. uh, and they have a, a office. Uh, I think they've since moved since we visited them, but uh, they were in uh, McCulley at right, that time. Right. And uh, we got a got a demo of uh, TrueTag, and it is pretty interesting. I mean, it's a very, very small little microscopic almost right. and is, is able to be uh, detected. Right. So if you have an optical reader, you can figure out where it came from, basically. And mm-hmm. in fact, they say that almost any forensic lab now would be able to identify these particles and it would help them track that, that down, whether it is for, you might think, say, CSI or something, but also certainly for tracking down counterfeit drugs. They're saying that 10% of drugs on the market in general are counterfeit drugs. Mm-hmm. And so they do say, as, as, as Hang Wu says, it's a, it's a very important problem for human health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did move in. In fact, now that I think about it, uh, that company, Sky Ventures, mm-hmm. moved to my building where I work uh, oh, for my Dole, day job right. at Dole uh-huh. Cannery. Right. But they also do decon gel, mm-hmm. which is you know re- removes radiation that you can just paint it on and peel it off. And also Igenics, they do a lot of eye surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's got a lot of uh, you know business interests and activities going on. Yeah, no, I think uh, this is kind of an interesting company and uh, and definitely one to watch. Uh, and they've got a lot of uh, yeah innovation. So absolutely. Fruits and vegetables are good for you, and according to new research out of the University of Hawaii Cancer Center, eating more of them could lower the risk of invasive bladder cancer in women. The findings come from the ongoing multi-ethnic cohort study, which was launched in 1993 to assess the relationship among a variety of factors, including genetic, dietary, or lifestyle. Well, the researchers looked at data from over 185,000 older adults collected over 12 and a half years. In that group, 581 participants were diagnosed with invasive bladder cancer, a fifth of them women. After adjusting for various variables uh, clearly tied to cancer risks such as age, the researchers found that the women who consumed the most fruits and vegetables had a lowest risk for the specific cancer. In fact, women who consumed the most yellow-orange vegetables were 52% less likely to have bladder cancer than the women who consumed the least, and intake of vitamins A, C, and E also correlated to lower cancer risk. Interestingly, though, no such link was found for men, something that lead author Song Yi Park says will require further investigation. This study was published in the Journal of Nutrition. Yeah, that is pretty interesting how, you know, I guess uh, female anatomy and, and male anatomy might differ so much that, you know, this <laughs> just the eating of these uh, 
uh, green orange vegetables would impact you know the the occurrence of bladder yeah uh, yellow cancers. orange vegetables and I'm, you know it's fun thinking of what those might be and make sure you have those colors on your plate they did note in the abstract that they also found an association for uh, people who are current smokers like it made a difference mm-hmm, if you were mm-hmm. a current smoker so I guess it helps to eat these vegetables and also specifically for Latinos but again they those those just sort of came up in the research and they have to focus on it more specifically what I thought was interesting though is that this multi-ethnic cohort study which has been going on for a long time mm-hmm. when I was researching this story they had another report or another study in 2008 that found that uh, you could reduce cancer or colorectal cancer risk in men specifically with more vegetables and fruits. So there is some, you know, information for men and some information for women, but it is interesting that there was that that uh, dis- distinction mm-hmm. between the two. Well, I think in a, as a general rule it's probably a good idea to dr- uh, eat more any kind of fre- <laughs> vegetables and fruits and I think uh, in the long run it'll serve you a lot better than probably good eating advice. a lot of meat. Well, finally, a couple of quick stories we wanted to share with you. Hawaii-based Volta Industries, which is deploying a network of free electric Vehicle charging stations supported by advertising is continuing to expand. Company officials recently completed a tour of California as Volta prepares to expand its West Coast presence and are now previewing a dozen charging stations in Arizona. By the end of the year, the company plans to have over 1,000 charging stations in up to 10 cities on the West Coast. And if you're interested in developing apps for the iPhone or iPad, the UH Outreach College's Pacific New Media Program is hosting a day-long workshop this Saturday. Local developers and friends of the show Kyle Oba and Chad Podosky will lead this session. It starts with the basics, but will cover some advanced techniques as well. Registration is $135, and for more information, you can visit outreach.hawaii.edu slash PNM. And now joining us in the studio is Matt Lynch from TEDx Honolulu, and he's here to tell us about the upcoming TEDx Honolulu Salon. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Now, of course, the question that always comes up is, uh, because we're all familiar with TEDx Honolulu, what is a TEDx Honolulu Salon? No, that's a good question. Someone was asking me the other day, and they said, are you you guys opening a hair shop? Right. No, 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 no. Um, so salons were sort of informal events that were held in the 17th, 18th century, and they were platforms for discourse and discussion. And the goal of hosting a salon back in the day was to sort of educate, entertain, and enlighten um, whatever the issues and the topics of the day. So inspired by those salons back in the day, TEDx has um, come up with a platform that we can utilize, adapt, and apply to the current day. Um, which really supports sort of Ted's overall mission of mm-hmm. ideas worth spreading. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, people who might not be familiar, Ted is a is a very pre- preeminent um, series of talks. The main Ted conference is very prestigious and difficult to get into. Then they have TEDx, which are regional events. But if I understand correctly, to attend TEDx, you need to apply and be vetted, and only certain people can be in the audience. Is that still also the case for a salon? The, you know. Uh, no, is the short <laughs> answer. Um, so the TED big event is, um, as you said, very difficult, very expensive to get into. Um, and the TEDx's are independently organized regional events. Mm-hmm. The salons are intended to be a more sort of grassroots type of event. And mm-hmm. it's intended to engage with the community. They're a lot more informal. And instead of um, being a full day worth of programming, it's just an evening's programming. So we ah. actually, yeah. So the format is the format. Uh, normally, if you go to a TEDx, uh, the person will go up there and maybe for about 10 minutes or so do a presentation. 
Uh, is the format pretty much the same for a TEDx salon? Um, it, we try to keep the talks. You know, everybody has a tendency to talk way longer than the time that you allocate. Mm-hmm. So um, usually we say, okay, guys, you know, 10 to 15 minutes and hope they come in under 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and the format for Friday's event is that the doors open at 7. The first hour is mix and mingle. We're going to have some live music. Um, it's at the Fresh Cafe, mm-hmm. so you can enjoy you know, a meal or have a drink, uh, meet some new friends. There's probably going to be some interactive um, activities going on that our volunteer um, teams are organizing. And at 8 o'clock, the actual speaking program starts. We've got three really amazing speakers, all local leaders. Tell us um, a little bit about this. Sure. Focus. So, uh, well, before I, I share about the speakers, perhaps mm-hmm. I'd like to share about the guest curator. Who, oh, sure, yeah. Uh, he's a friend of yours. <laughs> well, you know, we did ask him to come on, but he had other prior engagements. Well, he's a very busy man. Yeah, I know. You know, Forrest Fisal, he's, he's he um, was um, on the TEDx stage uh, last year at the big event, um, mm-hmm. which was held at Alani Resort. Um, and he he spoke on the sort of open data and mm-hmm. citizen engagement. And Sounds I am, familiar. Yeah, you guys know a lot more about this than I do. I've literally just got Instagram, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very technically minded, but I've learned a lot hanging out with Forrest and you smart guys. Anyway, so Forrest is guest curating, mm-hmm. which means that he has selected speakers around a theme that he's selected to explore this in further detail. So the topic that he's chosen to explore is disruptive leadership, which plays off of sort of disruptive technologies, but applies that to the realm of leadership in Honolulu. So the three speakers that um, he has selected, um, the first is Kalei Stern, and she is the director of the Omidyar Fellows Program. Um, And she has a story to share sort of about the sense of place. And so she's going to set the context for the evening. And the Omidyar Fellows Program itself is very fascinating in that it was sort of conceived of as a way to groom new leadership mm-hmm. um, to uh, as a sort of succession plan for the aging um, yeah, the, the um, I'm being totally politically incorrect but the you know the sort of the current crop of leaders mm-hmm. uh, and that's as, okay we always do that <laughs> <laughs> okay good um, so um, so that's Kalei, Kalei Stern mm-hmm. and she is the first speaker uh, second speaker is Joshua Wish, and he's the deputy director at the Hawaii State Tax Department. And he's not going to be speaking on taxes, thankfully. <laughs> um, and actually, I was fortunate to sit in the rehearsal on Monday. Mm-hmm. And when Joshua was finished speaking, we were all in tears. <laughs> it was wow. such an emotionally powerful and moving story. He w- he took us all over the world and then brought it back to a very personal story of sort of empathy, compassion, and forgiveness. And really what it boiled down to me, and I'm getting chicken skin now wow. thinking about it, but it was, um, it was a story of sort of leadership of self uh-huh. and how by practicing this sort of radical compassion, you know, um, and and really being inward focused and focusing on leadership of self, you could actually be a disruptive leader outwardly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the third speaker is Nicole Velasco, who is dynamite. I was um, had the uh, I was lucky to meet her um, almost a month ago and to hear her her story. And I um, just can't say enough good things about this this woman. Um, and she is has done some amazing things, had some really incredible adventures. She is sharing a um, political parable about the woman who dared. Um, All right. And, and, you know, what's that disclaimer they put at the end of movies? You know, any resemblance to real or uh, fictional is purely coincidental. Right, yeah. (laughs) Well, you've you've made quite a pitch. So uh, when and where is this event and how can someone perhaps 
participate. Right. So Friday night at the Fresh Cafe, mm-hmm. um, there's space in the back, loft in space. Um, I understand that we just sold out the tickets. However, oh. we won't be turning anyone away. So if you come and walk in. Um, Say Bite Marks Cafe at the door. There you go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they might ban you from the <laughs> No, you know what? That, that's a great idea. So tell, tell them Bite Marks sent you. Um, and admission is $10. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a bike valet option. So if you want to, parking sucks. Right. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> um, so if you want to ride down, then um, you get actually get VIP seats, um, which is cool. And uh, doors open at 7 o'clock. The speaking program begins at 8. Sounds great. Fantastic. Sounds like a great lineup. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Petra Schatz and Stephanie Shipton to talk about the tech involved in implementing Common Core standards. How is Common Core different than the core topics previously taught in school? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation as well. So give us a call at 941-3689 or toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're always monitoring Twitter, so you can reach us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Arlene Goldbard, author of The Culture of Possibility and a novel, The Wave. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how shaping our stories shapes our lives. Sunday morning at 11. The problems facing the tropical peat swamp forests in Indonesia. Peat swamp forests at the moment are being logged at a much faster rate than any other forest in Indonesia, which is really a disaster because in peat swamp forests we find the highest carbon stores in the world. Still, there are hopes to save them. I'm Steve Kerwood. We'll have that and more next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Monday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Petra Schatz and Stephanie Shipton. Stephanie is a portfolio manager in the Office of Strategic Reform. Meanwhile, Petra is an education specialist with the Department of Education. And what role does technology play in Common Core? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu. Or one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor island. Stephanie and Petra, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great. Good to be here. So you know, I think um, I I would encourage all our, our listeners, especially parents and, and and kids and students who are interested in what's happening with you know this Common Core. And I, I of course I've been a long you know like a long time since I was in the DOE, so I'm not being exposed in the classroom about what Common Core is. And I'm curious. What is Common Core and, and how is it being presented to some of the students that are you know now in school? Sure. So the Common Core are just new expectations for what kids should know and be able to do at the end of each grade level, mm-hmm. kindergarten through 12th grade. And I think one of the things that we're really excited about is these standards were created by teachers, by parents, by researchers, by higher education experts, um, by states, uh, by different um, state employees such as Petra. She had a hand in writing the standards themselves. Um, And they really address this concern that we're in a new reality. You know, by 2018, 65% of all of the jobs in Hawaii are going to require some sort of workforce training or some sort of college degree after high school. And we need to really get our kids ready for that. 
uh, it's not enough anymore to just have a high school diploma. So these new standards are just the stepping point. They're just the expectations, the what do we need to help our kids be ready to, to do when they leave our doors. Um, they don't tell teachers how to get there. They just provide some clear guideposts. Mm. Now, Stephanie, so, I mean, clearly we're beyond the three R's, the reading, writing, arithmetic, and such. Um, but I know there's a lot of things happening in the public education space. I'm a parent of three public school students at three different levels right now, and uh, it's almost dizzying what's happening in terms of a transformation. Of course, we're talking about race to the top and federal things. We're talking about our own standards and standardized testing. So Common Core specifically as a project, is that something that is relatively new? Is it uh, this year or, you know, what's the history of it? Um, how has it, in what time period did it come together? Sure. So the standards actually, the conversations around the standards and creating a set of standards that states could work together on and then decide to adopt on their own really started happening in around 2008. And then development of those standards began in about 2009, 2010. And then in June or July of 2010, the final standards were released and then states set to work deciding whether or not they wanted to adopt them. I see. And then go through those adoption processes. So for Hawaii, in 2010, our State Board of Education decided to adopt the Common Core State Standards. And there is a lot going on, but you can kind of think about the standards as a foundation. They're the clear guideposts for what kids should know and be able to do, sort of the goals that we want to reach. And then all of the different reforms link into that. So effective instruction to help students achieve and master mm. these standards and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So so at you know at a federal level do the standards sort of get set at some high sort of national level and then does it get uh, like you said adopted by the states but then what to what degree do the states have the ability to let's say modify it or or change it according to you know whatever the whatever the 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 task force at the state level wants to do. I'm so happy you asked that oh. question. <laughs> that's one of the things that the people who know me at work, that's one of the things that drives me crazy because states really owned the standards mm-hmm. and the federal government didn't play a role at all in paying for the standards development or influencing the content of the standards. The standards were created really by states um, and are owned by states and then states decide whether or not to adopt them. And I think Petra can talk a little bit about Hawaii's involvement in okay. the standards development. Great, Petra. Yeah, so Hawaii was really lucky to be on board in the beginning as the standards were being developed. Both uh, myself and Dewey Gottlieb, the math specialist, got to actually sit on the standards writing and feedback team. So what would happen is several drafts would come by us as the standards were being developed and we got to give input. We got to circulate some of the drafts to teachers that we were close with, get their feedback, and it really was a collective effort of the states that were involved with lots of feedback from teachers um, and lots, you know, lots of back and forth. So we got the best product possible and we're really happy with what we have now. Now, Petra, is it possible to maybe summarize? Because what I like about this ability to customize at the state level is that every state is different. And I would say that Hawaii's state public education system is perhaps the most oranges of the apples and oranges in the country. I mean, um, just broadly speaking, is there something that you saw here that uh, was very different from what perhaps peer states might have been facing that was a major priority for Hawaii? You know, for Hawaii, we really wanted to move away from what we consider sort of the mile-wide, inch-deep curriculum. And we were really excited about the Common Core because it focuses on deepening content knowledge and not trying to cover so many things at once. So we actually didn't add anything. Some states um, wanted to add things to the standards, so they put in additional standards. In Hawaii, we really wanted to stick to 
let's go as deep as we can with the standards that we have. So we didn't add anything. We kind of have the standards document adopted um, as it is to focus on that deep content knowledge in math and English language arts. But one of the really exciting things about the standards, I get really excited oh, about good. them, is there's an emphasis on taking the knowledge and applying it in real world settings. So mm -hmm. if you look at the mathematics standards, for example, there's a lot in there about modeling with math and using math in a real world type of problem and hands-on problem-based learning. It really calls for that instead of the sort of stand and deliver approach. And that's something that our schools in Hawaii are really leading the nation on, whether it's the aquaponics programs at schools like Palolo Elementary or schools in Keauku and Pahoa and in Nanakuli Wainai, or some of the different robotics programs that schools run. Um, that's something that I think is very important and that the standards really open the door for and encourage. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that we've reported on here on this show um, was uh, a pilot program now expanding and soon to expand much more broadly to implement technology in a specific way in the deployment or de uh, delivery of Common Core education. And I think it was a Big Island school uh, initially, and now we're talking about tablets. We may be experimenting with different platforms, different specific devices, but uh, perhaps, Stephanie, you can tell us a little bit more about that uh, initiative. Sure. So we, this year, are launching the Common Core Digital Curriculum Pilot Project, say that five times fast, <laughs> uh, with eight schools. And we are very grateful to the governor's office and to HEI for paving the way. So Hawaiian Electric Industries partnered with the governor's office on the Makana Connection Project, where they piloted something similar at Keao Elementary School and Kalani High School. And so building off of the lessons learned from that project, we decided to go all in with CCDC, is that the acronym, in eight schools. So Keao Elementary, Nanakuli Elementary, Nanakuli High and Inter, Nanai Kapono Elementary, Pahoa Elementary, and then Mililani Waina and Mililani Mauka. And what we're doing for these schools is really actually focusing on the Common Core State Standards and a new digital curriculum that's interactive and new digital assessment tools and new tools and strategies for teachers to integrate technology into their classroom instruction. And then also providing each teacher and each student some sort of device, whether it be a laptop or a tablet, as the vehicle for getting to all of those other pieces. So their focus really is on how do you integrate technology? So the last thing we wanted to do was buy a bunch of devices, put them in a van, drop them off at the school, drive away and say, good luck be successful, master the Common Core. <laughs> we really wanted to focus on integrating the technology into instruction. No. We're, we're oh. talking to Petra Schatz and Stephanie Shipton about the Common Core and technology tools that can aid in public school education. And if you've got a question, if you're a parent or a student uh, interested in this, we'd, of course, love to hear from you at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689 or on Twitter to at Hawaii or at Bite Marks. Well, you know, so uh, when you talk about uh, getting the students and the teachers, I guess, more uh, inclined to, let's say, use some of these uh, technologies, I think you started off by saying that uh, we're sort of facing this new reality. And it's interesting that people are now kind of coming around to the understanding that, uh, you know, things, this is the 21st century, things are a little bit different. There's internet, there's, you know, computers, there's all this uh, digital technology around us. Now, when when the um, teachers are now exposed, and this has been kind of a an ongoing challenge. I mean, they've always been exposed to some of these new technologies. The kids always are a little bit, uh, you know, like a couple of steps ahead of all the, you know, the teachers. And and then 
how do you get the teachers sort of up to speed with, with you know, whatever technology that you're trying to now uh, implement? And whether it's Common Core, the teacher has as much of a challenge to really adapt to that kind of new technology as, as perhaps a student. How does the teacher sort of get this leg up on the student? So with a lot of customized support. Okay. For our, for our one-to-one pilot schools, all except for two, we are actually only giving them the teacher devices in the first semester and holding off on sending the student devices until the second semester so that we can spend all fall with them at their school crafting a professional development and support plan that meets their needs. So we have a whole team of folks in our Office of Curriculum Instruction and Student Support and in our technology office that are going out to each individual school and working with them on, okay, what is your plan for making this happen? What are your teachers' needs? How can we help you meet those needs? And we're also working in partnership with the UH Lab School here in town, Mm -hmm. Um, they're also doing something similar at their school. So learning from what they've put together uh, and what they're working on and really trying to get that out to the teachers. But the big piece for us is making sure that the plan is customized for each school. Now, Petra, I mean, as a parent, um, I'm I'm always trying to navigate the waters of technology and education and entertainment. I certainly don't want a a classroom full of iPads with everyone playing Angry Birds. Um, One of the things that I'm running into as my daughter and my middle son are starting to write reports is, for example, a skill that I took as a nerd in intermediate school that apparently doesn't exist anymore, or you can prove me wrong, which is typing. Now, certainly uh, with touch interfaces and everything, maybe there's just no need to have to go through that step. Maybe we can just skip it. But uh, is something as rudimentary as interacting with a computer via keyboard included as part of what you're trying to teach or include in this uh, Common Core? First, I took typing in high school as well. I, and I, did not, I and want I, to talk about typing. Yes, and I, I want did to talk not about consider myself a nerd, but, but we'll go with it. Okay. We'll go <laughs> with it. Um, keyboarding skills are, yes, specifically written into the Common Core. I think just for that reason, kids, so much of what students are going to do nowadays is use the Internet to – find information, synthesize information, look for things, do research. They have to also use the computers to produce and publish documents. So keyboarding is really specifically called out in the standards starting at third grade level. So third Mm -hmm. grade, they need to build keyboarding skills. By fourth grade, they're actually, it calls it out in the standards, they need to be able to do um, keyboard one full page with um, uninterrupted. And fifth grade, it's two full pages. So really keyboarding is um, very very specifically written into the standards. Yeah, I, 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 I'm also thinking, though, and now I'm going to perhaps switch to the other side. I mean, uh, on the other hand, a lot of people say that, you know, keyboarding, maybe that's not the necessary channel, that either you're going to go to touch interfaces or maybe the way to deliver information is not a written report and to do it in a video, teach our kids how to make videos. And, in fact, uh, just last night or a couple of nights ago, my daughter tried to sign something, and I had no idea what that squiggle was, and it occurred to me that she doesn't know cursive. I mean, uh, Stephanie, is cursive dead? I mean, are we teaching old things anymore? No, not only is cursive not dead, (laughs) but in defense of your daughter, my signature is also a scribble, and I know cursive. But (laughs) (laughs) um, cursive is not dead. One of the exciting things about the standards is that they're a departure from the way standards have been in the past. So in the past, and I'm not saying this is true for Hawaii, but generally in the past, states would convene different folks they get together and kind of horse trade. I want the standard. I want the standard. We think the standard is important. We've got some research on this standard. This is important for my school. And then you would get a an anthology of standards that you would send out to each school, shrink-wrapped. And then teachers could use it to 
level wobbly desks. They could use it to <laughs> as a door jam. They could use it as a book stop. A, a book stop, but uh, it wasn't a very useful document. And the Common Core really focus on the need to have, not the nice to have. So every standard in that document is backed up by research and evidence. And unfortunately for cursive, there wasn't a lot of research and evidence that it was a need to have. Hmm. So Petra can talk about there are handwriting standards in the Common Core, but cursive met the nice to have threshold. But that also doesn't mean that it's dead because the Common Core is the floor. Teachers should go Mm -hmm. above and beyond Mm -hmm. if their students Mm -hmm. are ready um, and should strive for something more if they can. Well, we're talking to Stephanie Shipton and uh, Pietra Schatz, both from the Department of Education, and we're talking about Common Core. And, of course, if you have any question or comment about Common Core, feel free to give us a call. The number here is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 1-877-941-3689. We want to welcome Carl from Pune to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, I want to give a heads up to you guys over there and over here on the Big Island. Uh, I wanted to thank Steve Hirakami, who's got the uh, Hawaiian Academy of Arts and Sciences, our charter school here that's so wonderful. And um, our second grade teacher, Tara Terister, is uh, wonderful. My daughter's in her class, and they're doing the Common Core Standard and just introducing that. And also, I just wanted to add that they do uh, cursive studies as well, and um, they're doing some very innovative things there, which um, I feel we're very fortunate to have. And um, I just wanted to uh, thank you guys over there in Honolulu as well. Hey, well, thanks, thanks for your call. Thanks, thanks for sharing your experience there. And, Stephanie, that perhaps brings up another question, which is, uh, is there an interaction or uh, availability for the standard that has been developed for charter schools, for independent schools? Sure. Well, so charter schools are part of our public mm-hmm. school portfolio. They're an exciting, innovative part of it. They do adopt the Common Core State Standards as part of the public school portfolio. And they are also finding very exciting ways to apply the Common Core in their instruction, whether it's what UH Lab School is doing with their technology work or whether it's what um, Waters of Life is doing and integrating some of their project-based learning. So they are doing some very exciting work around Common Core. Now, you know, one of the things that I I read every so often when I encounter Common Core is that, you know, they make reference to these uh, tests that were given via paper and pencil and uh, that uh, it costs a lot of money and it's you know just a lot of it's unwieldy to manage all this uh, physical stuff, and that Common Core is part of part of the implementation is to go digital and and do it via uh, electronic versions of these exams. Is that is that also part of Common Core? Yes. So Hawaii is part of a consortium of other states working together. Where it's called the Smarter Balanced Assessment Consortium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the test that students will take will be um, online assessment. So there, there won't be a lot of paper going back and forth. But that's important because students do need those skills. And that's why those skills, those media technology skills are integrated into the Common Core. So they're not a separate part. But in the reading, writing, listening, and speaking, um, students need to produce and publish documents. They need to communicate using web tools, they need to evaluate information presented in different media formats, Um, all of that will prepare them to take an online assessment. Mm -hmm. And because we're collaborating with other states through this multi-state consortium, um, the cost should not be as much. And that was sort of one of the benefits of being part of a multi-state consortium. Mm, Interesting. 
Very good. We want to, um, of course, talk a little bit more about some of the digital literacy that's being impacted in the schools. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Petra Schatz and Stephanie Shipton about technology and media in the Common Core Standards. How are some of the ways the learning environment will change? Where does the media or multimedia fit into the picture? We'd, of course, love your questions as well. Give us a call at 941 941- 3689, or from the neighbor islands, you can reach us toll-free, 877-941-3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. The HPR News Department reports aren't only on the air. Their daily reports are posted on our website. Noe Tanagawa with Arts and Culture Reports, political reporter Wayne Yoshioka's updates on the legislature, Bill Dorman's news of Asia and the Pacific, Dave Lawrence with the latest pop star interview, the HPR News Department at hawaiipublicradio.org. They're just a click away. You do something to me. Love songs are one-act plays with two characters each. This is Michael Lasser. Join me for fascinating rhythm and songs of you and me. Sunday at 4 p.m. Welcome back. This is Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Petra Schatz and Stephanie Shipton about implementing the Common Core. And how is curriculum evolving in this new sort of digital delivery system? And of course, you can give us a call. Number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, you know, right before the break, uh, we were kind of uh, leading into this area of digital literacy. And and we had uh, Brendan Brennan come on from the UH Lab School and talk a little bit about uh, digital literacy. And I guess, you know, from the lab school, they're piloting and, and pioneering, you know, ways of introducing that into the into the curriculum. And I thought, you know, that conversation was interesting, but we didn't really talk about uh, Common Core per se. I mean, it was strictly all around just digital literacy. And I'm kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are, uh, both Stephanie and, and uh, Petra, about how does digital literacy sort of enter into this sort of Common Core standard delivery? Well, so one of the things that I think we should talk about that's really exciting is the department for the first time this year has adopted um, a set of instructional resources for all teachers to use. Uh, for the secondary level, there are resources developed by the College Board, um, and its, its program is called Springboard. But Springboard is really innovative and exciting because they integrate film so much um, and different ways of presenting. So film and audio, um, different ways of presenting information. Um, And some of the neat things, so kids in grade six will be like analyzing the Lion King, the narrative elements in the Lion King, and then writing about that. They'll be studying how a world changes and watching Toy Story and how the characters change in Toy Story and then talking about it. and incorporating into their own writing. So the curriculum itself has kind of evolved and is really diverse in that it's not just printed text that students are grappling with, but they're integrating film, they're listening to speeches, they're ta- you know thinking about how 
information is delivered in different ways and, and what that means for the information that's being delivered. And mm-hmm. at our elementary school, we have a new curriculum as well, and it has a really neat digital platform that the one-to-one schools are going to get to use. So kids will be exposed to digital text, so the text could read to them. Um, if they're having trouble pronouncing particular vocabulary words, they hover over those words or click on them. There's interactive games they can play to reinforce skills. So the curriculum is really changing to fit this new model, and it'll be really engaging for kids. I'm curious uh, if if uh, there's any uh, coverage of, let's say, online behavior and, and getting pe- you know kids to kind of understand the implications of how they perhaps uh, um, maybe reveal themselves or speak about themselves or, what, what, you know, what's the sort of DOE's position on, on properly uh, preparing kids to actually portray their online persona? Sure. So we already have an internet use policy. Mm -hmm. So it's called an acceptable use policy or an AUP, if you want to fall into the acronym world, um, that dictates how to appropriately and ethically use the internet while on department devices or while on department networks. But we're building off of that and we're learning from what schools like Kale Elementary School and Benjamin Parker have gone through and creating a device user policy. So that dictates appropriate ways to use the device and how to be responsible with your device and how to be a responsible user of the Internet. And then one of the things that we're doing is we're providing a lot of resources to the principals from schools that have already done this. So providing them with a sample quiz that KL Elementary School uses on the Internet and device usage policies that every kid in the grade in the school has to pass before any of them can take their devices home. Mm -hmm. So providing them with different examples and tools they can use. Great. And uh, we're talking to Stephanie Shipton and Petra Schatz of the DOE about Common Core. And uh, we've got a lineup of callers calling in. And, if, of course, uh, you've got a call. We've got a couple more minutes. So uh, the number to call is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. 941 3689 Joe from Ina Welcome to Bike Marsh Cafe. Oh, hi. Uh, thank you so much. Sure. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, do you guys know... What device is it going to be? I mean, have you guys decided on that? And when are those devices going to be bought? Uh, good I question. I'm just trying to figure out when, I mean, how close is all that? Okay, good. Um, sure. So thanks for your question and for calling in. We, uh, we worked with the schools. So there are, we worked in, this is a little bit of a long question or a long answer. What we did is we looked at the complexes that had enough internet capacity to support something like this. Because mm-hmm. we also didn't want to send devices out and have the internet crash on day one and then everybody's upset with us and nothing's working. Um, so of the complexes that had the full capacity, we talked to the CASs and the complex area superintendents and said, here's the application. We'd love to have schools volunteer to apply and you and the principal can sign off and send in the applications. Um, And one of the things we had on that application is let us know if you'd prefer a tablet or a laptop. Mm. And then let us know what type you'd prefer, and we can try to accommodate your request based on the preferences. So we, what came back is majority laptops. So we've purchased the laptops for all of the schools. So in Keao and Pahoa, because they are getting their student devices this semester, they were ready for it. We are actually in the middle of imaging all of their devices right now. We've got a team of about eight or ten people out there uh, sitting in a room, loading the software and the operating system and making sure that the device is ready to go when the box gets to the school. 
and minimizing some of the impact at the school level by taking care taking care of it for them. And on the on Oahu, the teacher devices are all coming during fall break, and we'll be doing the same imaging process there. And then the student devices for Oahu will come at around fall break, and we'll continue to do more imaging and then send it out to the students. In so second one semester. of the things that uh, Joe was kind of particularly interested in was the actual manufacturer, like whether it's going to be uh, an Apple device or maybe something else. Have you? Can you say anything about that? So based on the school's preference, we did purchase uh, MacBook Airs mm-hmm. for students and for teachers. And Apple also was able to put together a larger package of charging carts and different things. And then on our own for the schools to help them offset their costs, we purchased different software pack, not software packages, but different applications that they could use. And then we're also providing some professional development for them. And we're also providing them with resources beyond what Apple has. So what kind of Microsoft software is out there? So I'm I'm a Mac user, but I use Microsoft Office, mm-hmm. and that works for me. But there are also PC and Mac users who use Google Apps for Education, mm-hmm. and that's something that they're very excited mm-hmm. about. So giving the schools all of those tools so they can figure out what works best for them. Um, and we're also, so we're working with Microsoft, we're working with Apple, we're working with the UH Lab School, Brendan Brennan, mm-hmm. on Google Apps for Education. And we're not telling the schools which one of those they have to use, but we are trying to make sure they know everything that's out there. Sure. Good. Excellent. So it's a pretty flexible, I mean, it's up, really kind of up to the schools. You're not forcing anything down right. anybody's throat. Uh, we want to welcome uh, Debbie from Kailua. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Sure. My question is, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, education is not a one-size-fits-all for the students because each one learns differently. Will you be moving into online classes for those who really do better on that type of learning? Well, that's a great question, Debbie. Uh, and I think uh, as a as a teacher for some online uh, curriculum, I, I, I know that some students are more apt to excel at online versus uh, in-person. But of course, in-person is always, there's definitely a benefit for having the, the teacher there. Uh, any comments on, on whether or not uh, there'll be a differentiation between you know, online versus uh, in person. Well, thank you, because I think you point out a really important point that kids do learn differently. Um, We do have the Hawaii Virtual Academy, which is part of the Office of Curriculum Instruction and Student Support, and they do offer many courses online, but always looking to expand their online offerings. So um, certainly that that is a place to go, and certainly we're trying to not think of kids as a one-size-fit-all, but um, customizing the learning to them. It would seem, though, that, for example, one avenue, if you're a student, and I can certainly say that I considered this for my kids, might prefer an online-only environment, that's where perhaps the charter school environment might be a a good approach. And still, again, they have the availability of the Common Core, correct, Stephanie? Yes, so we do have a charter school that operates mainly virtually, and then we also, Petra mentioned, the Hawaii Virtual Learning Academy. But one of the other exciting things that we're doing is to help schools that may not have just enough teachers to cover classes that they would hope to offer, we're piloting a program with Waipahu High School where we actually beam a Waipahu High School teacher over to another school mm. um, on the Big Island. So that's also very exciting. But one of the really great features about technology as a tool to support instruction is that it allows the teacher to better differentiate her ins- his or her instruction within the classroom. Uh, so you can monitor what's going on in different types of group work settings. You can ha- pair kids a certain way and have them collaborate on an online document. Um, it really 
is a tool to help provide more flexibility. I want to find out a little bit more about this beaming. Uh, <laughs> so we'll get back to that one. I want to welcome Kevin from Kona to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Aloha. Aloha. Um, uh, I, I've heard your guests, and um, I hear a lot of talk about like technology and standards and math and language arts. But I wanted to ask about, like, um, is there any place in here for like performing and applied arts? Because I uh, have taught at a number of schools, and it's like I see some of that is like kind of declining. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure it's like if it's a matter of like funding or anything like that. But I would also like to hear your guests talk about like how can the technology help, you know, uh, the arts, and how can that get integrated a little bit more into the schools? Kevin, that's a great question. You know, we've uh, covered things like STEM, and then STEM sort of evolves to uh, uh, I think STEAM, STEAM, and then there was stream, <laughs> stream. but. Arts is a very important aspect of education, and I'd like to hear maybe your comments about uh, what Kevin has brought up in terms of how does arts get sort of incorporated into this Common Core? Yeah, Kevin, we're also really excited about that as well. I think the Common Core is a really nice venue to do some arts-integrated activities. So there's a lot written in about um, visuals, so looking at paintings and comparing those to poems and text. So that's kind of written into the standards. There's watching a performance and then comparing it to the written piece. So maybe Othello, you read it and then you see a performance and you talk about the difference in the performance and in the written piece. But I agree that we need to do a better job of really integrating arts um, with the Common Core. We, we have a school on Maui that does a fabulous job, Pomakai Elementary. They're a real arts integration school, um, and they've taken the Common Core, and they've focused a lot on drama, um, and, and they're just doing amazing things with drama and the Common Core, but certainly something we need to share with others, and thank you for supporting it, because I think that's it. Now, uh, Stephanie, when uh, my I get these really nice now reports from my school for my kids, beautiful, customized, and I'm like, wow, they've got a good, at least a good printer system, because I just remember little postcard report cards, and now there's this lovely narrative in many colors, but I do know that it just says math and reading. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I come from a family full of band geeks, and uh, I was a drama geek before I was a, a news geek. So really, where do those fit into uh, the, the bigger picture when you're talking about the Common Core? So I think those types of courses are very important. And Petra's talked about some of mm-hmm. the different comparative literature pieces in the standards. But thinking a little bit bigger, there are, through the one-to-one pilot, we're trying to push technology as a tool not only for English language arts and math, but if you think about the graphic design world these sure. days, you really need some sort of device to be successful in that arena mm-hmm. um, and the different strategies. And we're, we're providing devices not just for the English language arts and math teachers, but for all of the teachers that the principal has submitted for. So we're really hoping that social studies teachers and science teachers and arts teachers will embrace these and think about them as tools to help deliver instruction Say like content creation, um, a, a news writing class could be making video reports and interviews and those skills, for example. Absolutely. And so the devices come with with the different types of software that allow for video production, that allow for music production. And we're hoping that schools will embrace that mm-hmm. and run with it. Now, um, I just wanted to quickly give you a chance to say what uh, what, you, what were you beaming from uh, Waipahu over <laughs> to another school? Was that is that basically a video conferencing system, or what, what did you have in mind? It's it's a little bit more intense than a video conferencing system, um, and it it just involves 
interact sending a teacher online mm-hmm. to another school and then there's different software plat- platforms to actually allow for interaction um it's is it like blackboard or one of those type of uh, online sort of uh it's interactive like, it's like Blackboard and WebEx uh-huh. and Star Trek and uh, VCC all had a, a, a beautiful technology child, mm-hmm. and that's what we're, we're piloting right now. Well, I'd love to see that. Well, we're using words like pilot, and you know, you're talking about the initial deployment of these devices. Certainly things are just getting off the ground, and it sounds like we've just barely scraped the surface of what is involved in this program. How could a parent like myself or anyone find more information on this Common Core, what it involves, and, and, and uh, what things we can look forward to, for example? Petra? Okay. So you can like us on Facebook, the Hawaii State Department of Education. Well, I'll um, do that right now. <laughs> you can take a look at our Twitter account where we're tweeting links to our Common Core resources at HIDO808. And certainly go to hawaiipublicschools.org. And that's our website, hawaiipublicschools.org. And you'll find lots of information about the Common Core State Standards and the digital pilot as well. So please do check us out. I'm, I'm kind of curious. How are you evaluating the schools as they implement Common Core? Is, uh, are there Common Core police out there that are <laughs> sort of taking, taking grades and giving tickets? <laughs> they're they're not police out there, but we do have this year um, fifteen resource teachers. So one for each complex area that is focusing really specifically on Common Core state standards, and we're thrilled to have them on board. And they are really um, going to be collecting data on their implementation efforts. They're going to be supporting implementation, providing professional development, working in teachers' classrooms, um, giving lots of guidance. So mm-hmm. we we do lots of different things to kind of get a feel for how we're doing. In implementation, we talk to principals and complex area superintendents. We send out surveys, um, and we really are excited about these new resource teacher positions that are going to help us support Common Core. And Stephanie, what's the next milepost? I mean, what's the next big achievement uh, unlocked that you anticipate that we can look forward to in this Common Core deployment? So I think there's a few things. We have the new assessments that Petra talked about, and those will be coming online for school year 2014-2015. So we're looking forward to that. We have, with the digital pilot, we're looking forward to the report of findings that we'll be working on in January and then another one in the late in late spring mm. to really understand how did this help teachers? Did it alleviate some of the burden? Did it help them provide better instruction? Did it help them with classroom management? And really trying to understand what could we have done to better support them? Because we, we try not to police people. We really try to collect data for the purpose of helping them get better. Sounds great. I definitely will keep track of uh, Common Core and its uh, delivery. Petra Schatz is an education specialist, and Stephanie Shipton is a portfolio manager in the Office of Strategic Reform over at the DOE. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk to two of the companies from the first Energy Accelerator cohort. And if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. We leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Two Door Cinema Club and a song called Next Year. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.
Someday you'll be someday. 